I said something last week that I want to open up with. That freedom from religion does not take us away from a rhythm or a practice. It takes away the casual mindset attached to the practice. You catch that? Freedom, freedom from religion does not take away a rhythm or a practice. It takes away a casual mindset attached to the practice. We replace casual posture with an expectant posture. Someone say expectant. Expectant. That we expect God to move. We expect to be in his presence. We expect to experience everything he has. And where I want to go today is when you replace casual with expectation, you'll find that you'll be postured properly to receive instruction and interruption. When you embrace expectation, you will be properly positioned for instruction and interruption. There is a posture of expectation in carrying out what the Lord wanted. Last week, I talked about how when David was bringing in the, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God back to Jerusalem, we saw the story of Uso reaching out to steady the Ark. I want to pick up some years later when his son Solomon is getting ready to build the temple and all these things. And I want to show you this posture of expectation with, with, with Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. It says, The Lord gave this message to Solomon. Concerning this temple you're building, if you keep, if, 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 that's spelled I-F, if, is that how you spell it? <laughs> if you keep all my decrees and regulations and obey all my commands, I will fulfill through you the promise that I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and I'll never abandon my people Israel. That's a pretty incredible promise. I'm going to dwell with them, and I'm never going to leave them. But the promise of I will live among my people, and I'll never abandon my people, was hinging on what? If. If you obey. If you follow my what? Instructions. In other words, God says, I want to do something incredible. But in order for me to do it, you have got to follow a very specific design. Matter of fact, I would argue that everything in life, the Lord has a very specific design. Whether that means we've seen it or that means we haven't seen it. You know, everyone wants to be an apostle. But no one knows how difficult it is walking in that mantle. Because a true apostle will bring you into something that hasn't been seen which means everyone's going to critique the design because they're not familiar with it. There's a very specific design to this temple that the Lord wanted Solomon to follow. And I'm not going to 
read all the scriptures, but I did write down what the scriptures say in 1 Kings 6 if you want to read it. There, were, there was all these instructions for how the temple was supposed to be built. 90 foot long, 30 foot wide, 45 foot high, stones that were finished in the quarry and brought back in to build the walls. The main room was 60 foot long, decorated with cedar, stone paneling with carvings of flowers. The most holy place was to be measured 30 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot. The whole thing was to be overlaid with gold including the altar. There were two cherubim made of olive wood. They were 15 foot tall and each of their wings reached seven and a half feet long. The walls of the inner sanctuary were decorated with carvings of cherubim and palm trees and flowers. The floors were overlaid with gold. Over and over in 1 Kings 6, we see this very, very specific design. And not only was it a specific design, but it took them seven years to build it. It took them seven years to build it because, that one, there was a lot of specific instructions and they couldn't cut corners. You know, they couldn't replace the granite tops with butcher block. You know, that's something my wife and I did. We wanted, we, 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 we did some models to the uh, upgrades to the home and we were like, let's get some butcher block. That'll save a few thousand dollars and I think it looks good. But they couldn't cut corners. It wasn't a little bit of gold and a little bit of silver. It was all the gold. It was a very specific design, very specific instructions, and they did it for seven years, not because they had a mindset of we need to earn the presence of God, but they had a mindset that the presence of God will come when we are properly positioned to dwell. It wasn't let's build it so we earn presence. It was they had an expectation that if they built according to, then the promise was that they were going to see presence. Not they might see presence, but they were going to see and be in and experience the very presence of God. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. That, that phrase, be still, in another translation, actually simply says, stop striving. Stop striving to know me and simply know me. We shouldn't be coming to a threshing floor or an altar or coming to a day of prayer or church service with a mindset of we need to earn the right to be in presence. We shouldn't be coming into the presence of God thinking, let us get to a certain place in our music or a certain amount of people or a certain thing so that we can get in. It's, it's simply we need to have this mindset that God says, I want you to stop striving for me and accept the invitation to simply come and know me. It's not let us earn the right. It's realizing that Jesus earned the right for us and our call is be still and know. And unfortunately, the church is still full of earn the right, earn the right, get perfect, get righteous. And God says, I have already perfected you unto righteousness. You are as good as you're ever going to be in the eyes of my father because he sees you through the lens of me. You're purified. You are the righteousness of God. So there is no more, let me get better so that I can. It's receive the gift that he has made you righteous. Therefore, be still and know. 
But being still does not mean don't follow instruction. It is understanding that instruction actually positions us for more and more of his dwelling. You've got two books, Kings and Chronicles, that are pretty much the same story. And if anyone wants some, some nerd information, basically the difference is that Kings was a historical account of the succession of kings and the divisions of the kingdom in Israel and Judah. And there were these actions of the prophets who challenged political and religious leadership. So just on this out there, if you have any wonderings about should the church be involved in the political realm and the religious realm, yes, it's always been. And then on the other side of that, you have, king, you have Chronicles. Now, Chronicles was emphasizing David's dynasty and the role of the temple and the priesthood. The reason why I want to bring up those differences is because knowing the promise that Solomon had, if you build the temple according to these very specific instructions, I'm going to come dwell. I want to read the account in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. This is what it says in verse 6. Are you all following? In verse 6 it says, also, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Y'all hear that? Yes. Sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered. Solomon was going over the top with his praise. He didn't just give what was required. He, he was giving so much praise through sacrifice that the sacrifice could not even be counted. And people in church still argue over, do you tithe off net or gross? People in church still wonder, is, is music too long? People in church wonder, do I have to raise my hands? Can I sit down? Can I run around? We have all these, well, what can I get away with? Or what is the max? Like, what do I have to do? What's acceptable? And we need to stop getting consumed in how much do we have to give and be so consumed in God that your praises and your sacrifices are too much to be counted. That's where we have to be. Not because we're trying to earn presence but because we're expecting his presence. Like, when you expect presence, you have no issue praising because you're not praising in order to get in. You're praising because you're already there. And you need to hear this because in order for us to go where we're going, we can no longer come into a Saturday night gathering. I don't know if I've heard it at relentless, but I have heard it in my 20 years of being in ministry of the presence wasn't there today. Where the heck are you? Because my God is everywhere. But people have this mindset of there's got to be this specific feeling or this specific way or this specific breakthrough. And I'm telling you, God is everywhere. So it's not let us get to a place where we get in presence. Come in understanding that we're already in. And because we're in his presence, then Lord, I'm going to praise you like I'm going to an eternity. Because I'm in eternity in your presence. Like, think about presence is not just this ethereal idea. You're in the presence of God. He's in the room. He's with us. How dare we treat his presence casually? 
We need to get rested in, I just want to worship the one that I know. This is where King Solomon was. He was rested in knowing of a God who promised dwelling. And this expectation, this rest, this, this be still and know, Solomon wasn't striving to earn presence. Solomon was doing all of these good laboring works of building the temple because he knew if I build it, that this is going to be weird, God will come. That's, that, that wasn't made up by Kevin Costner. Like, there's, there's this expectation that caused Solomon, if it takes me seven years of laboring and laboring, his laboring wasn't striving because it was a joy to prepare for the presence of God. And we're on the other side of that where Jesus prepared us as a worthy temple to just let him be here. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. It says, The priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. Really quick pause right there. Just in case you don't know, in the temple, in the tabernacle, three areas, there's the courtyard. That, that, that You enter into the gates of the courtyard with thanksgiving and praise. Then there was a holy place, and then there was a most holy place. The most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. So in this idea, it says, the, the, into the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary. They could not be seen from the outside, and there they are to this day. Now, I want to bring something out that was not brought out last week. When David brought the ark into Jerusalem, back in the day when Uzzah reached out and, and touched the hand, or touched it with his hand, I want you to see this in 2 Samuel 6.3. It says they placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Usa and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart. Here's what I want to show you. God had very specific instructions of how to carry the, car, the, the ark. And it wasn't get the best cart you can get. It was get the poles and put it on your shoulders. So even in this moment, David was only going to experience but so much presence because he still wasn't following every detail of the instructions. God had very specific instructions, bring the cart on the shoulders of the priests. David brings it in on a new cart. And we do really good at trying to bring presence in with new carts, new systems, New styles, new trends, but have we asked God, what is your way? Because just because a system works doesn't mean it's the one that he wants. The new cart brought the ark back in. That doesn't mean it's the way he wanted it in. And there's a lot of good church that brings people to salvation. But Jesus said there's going to be people that bring me to salvation that I don't even know. 
in everything, there is a very, very specific instruction. And it's so specific that he says, I want you to bring the presence into Jerusalem or anywhere you carry the presence, carry it on your shoulders, which is actually in the likeness of God. Because if you recall, the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6 says Jesus is going to come with the government on his what? Shoulders. So even if we are made in the likeness of Christ... The way he brings in the government of God should be the same as we bring in the government of God. What is the government of God? His presence in all things. Is this making sense? I haven't even got to the meat yet that I'm going to pull out tonight. Unless this is meaty already. So the presence was brought in in the likeness of God. The government that is the dwelling place was to be brought in in a certain way. And now I want to go back to 2 Chronicles talking about Solomon doing this. Now look at verse 10 in 2 Chronicles 5. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb. Y'all ever catch that? Now remember, I taught you last week that in the Ark of the Covenant, there was actually three things. There was a jar of manna, meaning I will provide whatever you need. There was the rod of who? Aaron, which represented authority. And then there was the two tablets, which represented what? Instruction. Now, let me keep reading. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel, they had come out of Egypt. Okay. Let's keep that up there. Now, we do not know what happened to Aaron's rod or the jar of manna. There's no account of that. But here's what I do know. I... I believe this is actually a prophetic picture for us because when we carry the presence of God incorrectly, the authority is simply resting on us and the scripture says that we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So we don't need a jar of manna in the presence because we're not depending on God's going to provide whatever it is when you need it because that's called wilderness living. The Lord has brought us into promise, and we don't just depend on manna. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So it's not I have to live in such a way where I hope God gives me what I need. It's realizing God has already given me everything I need, and all I got to do is is access it. And the reason I can access it is because Christ gave me the authority to do so. Is that making sense? The only thing we need to do now, realizing that we carry the authority of God as imitators of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, as as those that carry the authority and have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, there is one thing that we need to make sure we keep to when it comes to the presence of God, his instruction. Solomon was so rested in knowing God that he made sure to follow every single thing. Instruction. And because he followed every single thing and every single instruction, this is what happens in verse 11. It came to pass when the priest came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. That could be a whole preaching moment right there. All the leaders of different denominations threw away their denominations for a moment. 
They threw away their divisions and they were unified. Yes. Amen. Amen. All the priests who were present sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. And the Levites, who were singers, and all those of Asaph and he oh, He-Man. I didn't know he was in the Bible. And <laughs> Judathan, with their sons and their brethren. That was a joke, y'all. Stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Can you imagine how loud that was? So I don't want to hear any more complaining about the volume in this place. <laughs> and just for clarity, I haven't gotten this complaint, so it's just a joke. Just chill out. Okay. 20 priests sounding with trumpets, 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass. When the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound. Y'all hear that? Yeah. One sound. To be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good and his mercy endures forever, that the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. So that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The promise came forth because there was very strict following to the instructions in order to house the presence. You see, normally the priests and the Levites worked at the temple according to a very strict schedule, which is kind of funny because we have like a general flow that we tried to stick to that also got interrupted tonight. Just throwing that out there. But on this day, the priests did not keep to their divisions. They were unified with the Levites with one sound. <clears throat> now, I have preached over and over in my time as a minister about one sound. And what's interesting about the scripture is that you can read passages you've read over and over again and God will always reveal something new. And he showed me something that I'd never seen before. All the church was together with one sound. It was unity. They were praising the Lord. But what I want to do is I want us look, to look back at part of the instruction of building the temple in 1 Kings 6. Because in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, it says this. The stone used in the construction of the temple were finished at the quarry so that there was no sound of hammer, axe, or any other iron tool at the building site. There was no sound of hammer, axe, or any tool at the building site. The stones were finished not in the place prepared for presence, but at the quarry. In other words, there was no sound of work being done in the place of his presence. There was no sound of striving. The finishing of the stones was done off-site at the quarry because in the place of his presence, a unified sound cannot contain a sound of work or striving. So if we want to enter in a day where the presence of God fills a people so much that everything gets interrupted and no one can do anything because we're in presence, the one thing that we have to break the religious mindset of is our 
aptitude to strive because it is not the sound that brings in presence. And for so long, the church has preached a message of you better earn it, you better, you better get at the altar and pray, and you don't pray because you're, you're consumed in presence, you pray because you're scared to death you won't get it. And there's more people that have a relationship with the altar than relationship with Jesus. It's just too much. Let me show you this in 1 Peter 2.5. You are living what? Now what was used to build the temple? You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest. It doesn't say you will be. You are. Through the mediation of Jesus, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. God cannot, by his own instructions, finish the stones in the place of his presence. Called a temple. You hear that? His own instructions say, we ain't doing any work on these stones in the temple. Those stones are going to get worked on at the quarry. That brings a whole new meaning to an ever popular phrase when Jesus said, it is finished. You know where the quarry was? It was on the cross. So, so, so the Lord said, I'm going to do everything I need to do to fashion these stones correctly through the blood of the Lamb. And when he resurrects, all the stones are going to be, be positioned to become the very place of my dwelling. And when, when the believers were in the upper room in Acts 2, they weren't striving. They were simply resting in the presence of God, not knowing what to do. And because there was no sound of striving, it went... Because they were rested in knowing and not trying to earn something. Is this speaking to you? We are finished stones of righteousness. But our sound is often still striving and earning. And we're not rested in knowing who he is or even who we are in him. Confess your sins. Confession should be something that's easy to do. It's, it's pretty simple. Lord, I did this. Forgive me. Move on. But we've turned in confession and repentance into this fear-mongering idea in the church. Oh, you better repent. And when we think of repent, we think of falling on our face and crying all day and, and making sure God knows that we don't think anything of ourselves. Repent is simply change the way you think about it. But we've turned it into the strife. And I, just to clarify, I have nothing against getting on your face prostrate before God and crying. But I'm saying do that because you're enamored in presence, not trying to earn the right to be. Does that make sense? Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you what? Rest. That word rest means to permit from movement. To be placed in patient expectation. Woo. 
So he says, strivers, people who are working with heavy labor, toiling all day for my presence, he says, stop working for it and realize that all you need to do is come to me and I will give you the placement that you've been striving for all along. You want to know why so many people come to church and, and, and we, we kind of had this rhetoric of, I don't know what the Lord wants me to do. Because you're still in a mindset of you have to earn the right to be placed. The only qualification of being placed is simply Jesus says, come to me. And come to me is not, I, I better earn the right to get in, so I'm going to start in the back row, and I'm going to get a little closer. And, and, and can we just throw that religi religiosity out as well? The, the, the back row is just as holy as the altar area. Like you're not less of a seeker because you're in the back of the house. Because his presence is everywhere. 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 I'm putting more syllables in than it's actually designed for. He says, just come to me and rest in knowing me. I want to read this passage in Hebrews chapter 4, 9 through 11. It says, there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. All have entered into God's rest and have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. I'm going to get you to put that one back up after this next verse. <clears throat> so let us do our best to enter into that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we'll fall. Throw that verse 10 back up there. All of entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. Now, when God created the world, it says what? He, he worked for day one, two, three, four, five, and six, and on the seventh, he rested. When it's talking about rest here, when you go back to the original language, it actually literally means to be rested from laboring. Not saying that we should no longer do good works, but rest in understanding that knowing God, good works are no longer a basis for righteousness, that his work is a basis for righteousness. You don't do good works to get right. You are right, therefore there is a flow of good works. He worked six days and rested on the seventh. And unless there's another Bible out there that I have not acquired in almost 38 years, it doesn't say, and God started working again on, day, on the next day one. He worked six days, and then he rested. He worked six days, and then he rested. Because everything that needed to be in the earth it was what? It was finished. I put forth to you that Sabbath, Sabbath rest is not one day a week. Sabbath rest is cutting off the vine called striving because your Sabbath is understanding that in Christ there is permission to be in a state called seventh day rest. Y'all hear this? It's not... It's not I need to work for six and take a day off. It's every day I am in Sabbath. 
because I'm no longer having to labor for presents. I don't have to wait for Sunday for presents. I, I take presents when I'm picking up trash at Southbridge. I, I take presents when I go into my 9 to 5 job on Monday. I, I am in presence when I'm in my living room. I'm in presence when th th there's a conversation with my spouse. It, it, it's not I work sick so that I can have a day of rest and that's the Lord's day. It, it's actually reversed. Sabbath is not really the Lord's day. The Sabbath is your day. And in case you wanted to fight me on that, I'm going to read Mark 2, and this is not up there because this is one of those last-minute things that the Lord gave me. But in Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 23 through 28, it says, One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. Now, you hear this? They were working to get food on the day of rest. So the Pharisees said to Jesus, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? After all, it's the Lord's day. So this is what Jesus said to them. Haven't you ever read in the scriptures? I love that Jesus does that. He looks at, he, he looks at the religious people and says, don't you read your Bible? <laughs> Haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for you to be able to meet your needs. What meets your needs? Being submitted in the presence of God. So the Lord says you can stay in one through six or you can enter in a state of being called seventh-day rest. And the rest is simply come to me, all who you are striving and laboring and trying to earn presence, and I will give it to you. The invitation is simply enter into rest. When we walk in this revelation in a unified sound, the glory of God's presence will be so thick that we will not do, be able to do anything but sit in it. But a unified sound is not a style. It's not a genre. It's not contemporary versus hymns. It's simply this is a sound of no more striving. That's the sound. Think about... When the people brought in, uh, when they were coming into the, the presence of God and, and with, with, the, um, with Solomon's temple built, they were praising God. And not any of that praise was, we better make sure we play these trumpets really good so we, so we might get presents. It was praise knowing that it was going to happen because they were following his instructions. There was no more striving. There was no more, maybe we'll get it. There was no more, if, if, if we have a good worship service, God's going to meet us. The fact of the matter is, if you come into church and you don't feel, feel presence, that is not the church's fault. It, it's The repentance there is I need to be renewed understanding that I'm in agreement with believers coming to worship the king. He is here. He is among us.
And I love what happened tonight, not knowing what this message was going to be, at, be, be about. And I know this is going to sound crazy to you, but I'm done with my message. Yeah. See, when, when, you, when you follow the design, you prepare for instruction and what? Interruption. And there was a moment where I, I think the, the worship team maybe played 20 minutes and then it just stopped. And people started praising God in English, started praising God in tongues, started saying glory, 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 and it just went on and on and on because there was a moment there where everyone understood, oh, we're, we're here. And I put forth to you that if we want to see, everyone keeps talking about revival. Revival, that word revival means to learn how to catch the breath again so that you can be fully restored. No one wants to get revived and stay in the hospital. Revival is a process for the goal. What's the goal? I want to fill my house to where there is no more ministering that can be done. That's the goal. Do you hear that? And, and, and when I, 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 I want to be clear, I, I believe we are walking in revival and we're going to see more manifestation of revival, but, but you need to understand that that is not the goal of this house. We need the revival to get to the restored place of simply being in the presence of God. And part of the revival is not just seeing a display of miracles, signs, and wonders. That's going to happen. But part of learning how to catch our breath again is you catch breath when you learn how to rest. I, I no longer have to earn God's presence. I'm in it. We no longer have to go find the presence of God. He's all around us. You don't have to get worthy to house his presence because all that work was done at the quarry called the cross. He has already fashioned you in such a way where you're worthy to be a temple. You have the authority. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So it's very simple, Lord. What is the instruction so that this temple could be filled? What if the instruction sometimes is simply blessing that person that you never wanted to bless? What if the, instru what if the instruction is, hey, I want you to pray for six hours, but it's not because of striving. It's just you want to be in a place of prayer for six hours, understanding who he is. You see, I, I'm not coming against the things we do. I'm not preaching against that. It's the sound behind it. Because when they were building the temple, there had to be a getting the stones ready. But God said, but not in this place. 
And church, we have got to be free of that. Have you ever noticed that in the garden before Adam and Eve, before Eve had the conversation with the serpent, that there was no striving for more. They were just completely satisfied. But as soon as she walked away from presence into a place where she was never meant to be, the idea of I want more came in. And a lot of times we're seeking for more outside of simply the walk. I believe it's a very simple message. Right? The Lord is looking at you and he's saying, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you placement. I'm going to put you where you need to be. I don't know what the Lord's doing with you, but he, he wants you to know that he loves you and he's not disappointed. And all, all he wants is your embrace. That's all he wants. You hear me? He, the, 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 the visions and dreams over you are not lost causes. He says, follow, my, follow this instruction of coming to me, he says, and they'll come to pass. Do you receive that? Yeah. Yeah. 